is Testimonies of Life and Related Stories, the podcast. We look forward to you being with us as we recount stories of conversion and life experiences as told by those who were there. Today we are catching up with Peter McCutcheon. Peter and I formally met a few months ago and realised our connections went back a number of years to our childhood and youth days. We both grew up in the same area, in the north side of Brisbane, in the 70s and early 80s. I actually don't recall meeting Peter at that time, but certainly remember some of the other characters that were part of a neighbourhood gang that Peter was associated with, including names like Dumpy LeVacan and Nonny Gidley. As part of the context, I have a particular memory of a confrontation with some of the members of that gang at the local pool where they stood over me and I had to surrender my pocket money on the fear of being beaten up. I did escape the pool pretty soon after and potentially in fear of my life. It seemed somewhat dramatic but they were a pretty rough and tumble group and much better placed at serving out threats than my own peers at the time. With that as an introduction, I'd like to welcome Peter to the podcast. Thank you. Peter, you knew some of those characters and their activities around the neighbourhood in detail. So I'll pass the story to you to talk through some of your youthful experiences growing up on the north side of Brisbane. Okay, right. On the north side of Brisbane, Sandgate is where I grew up. And uh, yeah, I remember... Uh, the guys you're talking about there, there was many more, but um, I don't think I was part of the the, the mob that robbed you <laughs> of, your, of your money. I, I, yeah, I can't remember that one at all, but um, yeah, it was like it was uh, mainly just a, a bunch of us that would get together, would be drinking and going out and get involved in criminal activities and and uh, yeah, it was just a crazy uh, mixed up youth days. Uh, some of the guys have passed away, like you mentioned, uh, Nonny Gridley there. And Nonny's passed away. His brother, uh, Glenn, has passed away. And there's a few others from that era as well. But a few of them have come to Christ as well, wow. which is fantastic. And, yeah, still, still serving the Lord today. And that's the other side of the story and the reason why we're here today. You have all those experiences as a youth running around the neighbourhood, playing rugby league, drinking, getting into trouble and taking on life as it came at you. But was there a particular time that things started to change for you? Were you challenged by something, or did life just run on for a period of time? Life went on for a certain period of time. I was, uh, I was pretty radical as a, as a teenager. I had a dad who, who was a military man. Uh, my mum was a Jehovah Witness, so there was conflict at home straight away. My dad was a heavy drinker. His idea of discipline was a clenched fist. And so I'd often run away from, from home or run away from my father and, and end up on the streets. It was when I was on the streets that I started to hang around, you know, this is probably around 12-year-old, that I started to hang around these older guys around Sandgate and got introduced to alcohol, turned to, to crime basically to survive because uh, I didn't have no income or anything. I uh, would live in a lifeline bin out in the streets and um, it wasn't long before I was caught for stuff that I was doing. I was put in and out of, out of kids' institutions. And, you know, I got old enough then to be put into an adult prison and that scared me. I was, I was, I was scared about going to, to Bogger Road or any prison. I end up, uh, when I was on the streets, I, I, uh, I met a girl... And how I met her, her father used to own a coffee sh- or run a coffee shop, a Christian coffee shop on a Friday and Saturday night on the beachfront at Sangay. And we'd go along there because we could get uh, free a coffee, we could get like, food, uh, biscuits, whatever, you know, it was uh, a good place to go and get some food, basically using the, <laughs> the Christian. And... Uh, and Actually, I'll, go, I'll just backtrack a bit from there, talking about using the Christian. There's another guy called Chookson. Um, 
he he was a Christian. He'd always reach out to us young blokes on the streets, and we bailed Chuck up one day and asked him that if he could come up and give us a hand to grab a hot water system that was given to us. So we went up to these flats at Shawncliffe. My friend and I said, "Just wait here, Chuck. We'll go and get it." And we went into the flats and unscrewed the <laughs> unscrewed this hot water system from this unit, so we didn't know who it was and rolled it out to Chuck's car, put it in the boot and he took it up to Benio to Sim Scraps Metal so he could get some money. But it was just using the Christians all the time. I remember my, my two of my friends ended up uh, starting to go to church with Chuck. And it was a Sunday and I had no mates there to drink with and so I asked where they were and they said, I was in church with Chucky. I said, well, that's not on. So I walked into the middle of the service. I grabbed my two mates around the scruff of the neck and dragged them out of the church service and and on the way out abusing the, the pastor out the front saying, you leave my friends alone, they don't want this rubbish in their life. Strangely enough, uh, one of those guys are going on for the Lord today and going strong. Actually, he's a millionaire, which is, was quite amazing. So back to the Christian coffee shop at Sandgate, I went down there this one particular night and I saw a E.H. Holden parked across the road. Those days we used to steal a car and go and sell it just to get some some money for food or alcohol or drugs. And I jumped in this car and I took off uh, driving down along the, the Esplanade at Sangay. And as I was, I was driving along in this car, now I kid you not, I had no control over my hands. My hands just started to turn the car around and started to, it was like the car was driving itself back to this coffee shop. I was drunk. And uh, as we were coming up to the coffee shop where, where it was, I, I saw the owner on the footpath uh, kneeling down uh, with his hands clasped together. So obviously now I know he was praying. But I turned the car back straight into where I stole it from. He got up off his knees and come running across to where I was and I've jumped out thinking that he's going to want a fight. Uh, he came and he put his arms around me. He said, where are you staying, Pete? And I said, I'm in the lifeline bin. And he said, we come inside. He said, I'll, I'll give you some food now. We're just about to close here. I'll take you home for the night. Now, his daughter was away at her friend's place for the night. And so he put me into his daughter's bedroom. As I went in, I was asleep in, in the room in her bedroom. I got woken up in the middle of the night. The light come on. Uh, this beautiful bonds standing in the room. And I thought, wow, what's, you know... <laughs> He not only giving me the bed for the night, but he sent his daughter up as well, up here as well. But when I saw her, I think it was the the first time that I've ever experienced love, Ellen. I, I never knew what love was, and 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 my heart raced that little bit faster when I saw this girl. Uh, from that moment, she just she just said, "Oh, look," uh, asked me what I was doing there. She knew of my reputation. Uh, she she went away, gave me a come back with a bucket and said, don't vomit in my bed. And she went out of the room. So I didn't see her again that day or that morning. And I, I left that morning after they gave me breakfast. And I had to hang around for brekkie. <laughs> anyway, left there and, uh, you know, I just wanted to see this girl again. So I did. And uh, we were down at the Sangate Pictures. At a, they had a movie night on down there. It was like 20 cent back in them days to go to the movies. And... and uh, asked her to come and sit with us during the movie, and we started to date uh, from that point. Anyway, it, uh, the dating didn't last long. It was like two weeks on, two weeks off, you know, a month on, and two months off, and back a month. But during the time that we were broken up, no one, she couldn't get another boyfriend because if anyone went to take her out, I'd flog them. And <laughs> so... So she was finding it difficult to get a boyfriend. But uh, anyway, this uh, this one of my friends got with her, and uh, he was he was a bit of a street fighter as well, and it was a bit of a toss up whether who'd win the fight. So I was a bit weary about telling him that you know you can't go out with me. She's my lady, and we're on and off, and we'll be back again soon. Anyway, they got together. She got engaged to him. I thought, I oh, know this 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 beating in my heart, this love that I had for her, started to slow down. And uh, I thought, I know what, I'll get how to get rid of this guy. I'll, I'll, we used to make uh, bombs, little bombs back in them days and go around and blow up parking meters and AB phones and that and get all the coin out of them. So I made this, made this little bomb and put a really short detonator on it 
And I said, hey, mate, how about we go and blow a hole, hole in the side of the police station? And he goes, yeah, okay. And so I, I gave him the... Just for something. Just for something. Just passing the time on the weekend. And so he's gone and pasted it to the side of the, the police station, hit the detonator, and because it was such a short detonator, it went off before you had even time to get out of the police yard. And the police look out, they saw who it was, they arrested him and they put him into prison for uh, six months. And I thought, beauty, I'll, uh, I'll go and get the girl now. And so I've marched back in to, to get the girl and she had heard what had happened and she just said to me, I want nothing to do with you ever again. You stay out of my life. I, I never want to see you. So this heartbeat that was so fast and in love, just it just slowed right down. I started watching her life um, after he came out of, out of prison. And she said to him, I can't be with you unless you become a Christian. I thought, what's going on here? And during the time that she was in uh, he was in prison, she became a Christian. Uh, she had a strong faith. Uh, anyway, I started to watch how radically her life started to change over the next few years. I'd just hear stories, or I'd see, you know, not that I'd see her, but I'd hear stories of how she was going, and I thought, wow, I'd, I'd love to change like that. And I'd tried so much in my own strength to change, and I'd maybe last a week at the most before I'd be back doing something stupid or, or getting into trouble. Eventually, I um, ended up in prison. Um, There's a number of different things. There was robbery with violence. There was breaking enters. There was assaults. There were so many. I ended up, by the time I was 17, I had six fools cap pages line by line of the criminal history. I was in prison, and even though in prison, I could not stay out of trouble. I'd be getting into fights. I'd be getting up the mischief inside the Woodford Prison. Um, this, this was on my last time in. I ended up in Long Bay Prison and Cessnock Jail and Parramatta Prison. There was, you know, just going through, travelling around Australia and just getting in, into trouble wherever I went. But this last time I was there and I'd played up, got in trouble and they put me on, on uh, bread and water for three weeks and put me down into solitary confinement. And it was there again that I was just contemplating life and said, you know, I'm just sick of this. I, I just don't want to, I don't want to live. I don't want to go through any more of this life. It's just too hard. And so I undid my bed pack and I started to tear the sheets into lengths and I started to plait the sheets in the length and I was going to hang it across the bars and around my neck and top myself in solitary. And it was at that point that... That and looking back, you know, it was God uh, said to me, "Why don't you write Maria a letter?" That was the girl that I that I was dating that told me that she never wanted anything to do with me for the rest of my life. And it was like the Lord said to me in that in that cell, "Why don't you write Marie a letter and ask her how to change? Tell her how she changed because you want to change, but you just don't know how." And so. I started to pen this letter to her. I asked the officer for a, a paper and pen and, and started to write this letter uh, to Maureen. Meanwhile, this must have been a couple of days before, her father had said to her, oh, where's Peter? I haven't seen him around for years. And she told him that he's in prison. And uh, he said to her, you should write him a letter and tell him how to change because God's the only answer for that man and you're probably the only one that will get through to him. And so I posted this letter that afternoon asking this girl, asking Maria, how did you change? I want to know. I've tried so hard in my own strength to change and I've failed so miserably every time. The next morning I get a letter from her telling me how to change. She said to me in the letter, she said that, that one thing that got me in the letter was that Jesus would come into my life and he'd be my friend. Now, we spoke about friends earlier through the, our younger years and youth, youth years. But looking back, I, I think a lot of them were just acquaintances. They weren't really close friends. And I long for a friend. And when you're, when you're locked up in prison, you, you find out who your friends are. Because uh, not many of them were visiting. Not many would come and see you or take the time out as a, as a friend. 
And so that went that part in the letter where it said that Jesus would become my friend, it really got my attention. She started, I wrote back to her and she started visiting me for the next, I think about had about eight months left on my sentence. So she was up every, I think every second weekend would come and, and visit me sometimes every weekend would come and, and, and visit me. She'd share stuff with me about Jesus and uh, that slowness of the beat of the heart started to increase again because I still loved her even after all of these years. It got time for my release and she drove up and picked me up from the, the prison and said that she would uh, she had to go to work but she would see, see me that night. And so first day out of prison, I'm back up the pub at Brighton and straight back on the booze now. You know, I got out of out of uh, Cessnock Prison in New South Wales. I got released at 6.30 in the morning, uh, 6 o'clock in the morning, went to the early opener at Hamilton, uh, got on the booze, uh, bought a bottle of Plonk, went and got to get on the train at 10 o'clock and I was back in prison that by the end of the day, <laughs> locked up again. And so this, and alcohol was uh, the huge, the big problem there. If it wasn't for alcohol, I probably wouldn't done much jail at all. And so I had this in the back of my mind. I'm sitting up the Brighton pub and, and, and I was just drinking away, getting drunk. And I thought, no, no, she said that she would see me tonight. And so I went round to her house and she was a bit disgusted that I'd been drinking. So she said, you really need to talk to a friend of mine. He was a Christian and he'd done time for armed robbery um, before he was a Christian. Uh, she said, I'd like him, like you to talk to him. I said, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll talk to him. So it was another, I think it was the next night then where I went back to her house and Leon Bentley was this guy's name. Uh, Leon, when he was sharing the gospel with me, he was using uh, Christianese language, you know. It was like, uh, man, you're in the darkness, you need to come into the light. Now, as a guy that's not a Christian and knows nothing about God, when... You know, I'm sitting in a room. I said, man, the light's on. There's no darkness here. What are you talking about? It's sort of going over my head. But eventually he explained it more clearly to me and he gave me opportunity. If I asked me if I wanted to receive Jesus Christ into my life and, and that he would become leader of my life. I was sort of up in the air, yes or no. Should I do this? Should I, should, shouldn't I do it? But I looked over at Maria and said, you know, I remember what she did to her first fiancé, she got rid of him because he wasn't a Christian. And so I thought, man, if I don't become a Christian, then I'm not going to get the girl. And so, <laughs> so I, I made a decision for Christ with strings attached. I said, I'll get the girl if I become a Christian. How easy is that? And I think God knew that. I think God you know, set it up so that she'd be in the, the room the very night that I, I had opportunity to receive Christ because... He had a plan for me and that girl. And so I became a Christian. To be honest, nothing much changed. Um, I started to go to church. I started to make uh, new friends. And after a while, I, I, I sort of left, left the old, old friends behind and, and started to hang around this a new group of people that, uh, from church. Uh, I remember being in church not knowing anything about God, anything about religion, I knew nothing. And I was sitting there in a pair of Dunlop volleys, a pair of torn Levi's and a T-shirt and a duffel coat because it was winter. And I was sitting in church and this guy in the church, he tapped me on the shoulder and after the meeting and he said, I'm from New Zealand, uh, I don't know you, but I just want you to know that God's told me to tell you you're an evangelist. Oh, no, great, thanks, man. I really appreciate that. Uh, yeah, nice to meet you. And he left and I turned to to Marie and I said, Marie, what's an evangelist? Because <laughs> I didn't have a clue. And she, in the best way she could, said, oh, it's just someone who has the ability to, to win people for, for Jesus Christ, you know, to get them along to church. And, and she put it as simple as she could for me to understand. And so I remember... Um, going out to, well, in those days we had what they call fellowship tea in between services. So that was at the end of the 2.30 service, which finished around 4.30, and then we'd go out at 4 o'clock and we'd go out, have a meal together in the valley. We used to go up to a Chinese restaurant with the youth and or some someone there and then go back for the 6 o'clock service. And so I've just left this service being told I'm an evangelist 
And Marie's explained to me what an evangelist is. And I'm sitting in this Chinese restaurant. Now, I'm a, I'm a uh, includer. I hate it when someone is sitting alone or someone's on the outer and, and can't get a look in. And so I want to go and include them. I want to bring them in. I really feel for them. And so we're sitting in this restaurant and I looked down and there was a girl sitting in this restaurant on her own eating the Chinese meal. And I said, said to myself, oh, she's alone. She shouldn't be alone. Well, she's alone. All of us uh, youth are here. We're, we're all churchgoers. She might enjoy our company. And besides that, she might know Jesus. Hang on, I'm an evangelist. I, 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 can, I have the ability to, to win people for the kingdom. I have the ability to share about Jesus. That's what I'll do. And so I stood up and started to walk towards her in the restaurant. Now, I stood up. When I stood up, I was as bold as. And, you know, nothing was going to stop me. But each step that I took was like the enemy got in there and started to bring this fear Upon me. So by the time that I got to her, I was just shaking like a leaf. My, and, and, and as I was trying to speak to her, the words that were coming out of my mouth were stuttering. And I went, Jesus? And she looked at me and she goes, What? Like that, and that bark from her made me take a couple of steps back. Marie saw what was happening and come running up to the table where I was talking, said, that's okay, don't mind Pete, he's just got out of the mental institution. <laughs> but he's just wondering whether you'd like to come along to church with us tonight. Didn't want to come, but I'd made an absolute fool of myself and I sat down. Now, you know, Alan, at that point I could have gone one of either two ways. I could have thought, no, this evangelism, this sharing the gospel is way too hard. Or I could have said, I'm going to learn everything there is to know about sharing my faith effectively and I want to start leading people to, into the kingdom. And so I took the second option. Since that time, it's been a, like growing as a Christian. It's a, There's been a lot of weeds that have been pulled out from around the trees. A lot of weeds have come out and freed the roots up to go deeper and, and spread out spread out more. And so the journey for me hasn't been a, a fast one where I've straight away jumped in and knew everything about it and get baptised straight away or baptised in the Holy Ghost. It was, it was all a progression uh, for me. I never had anyone to disciple me. You know, and I look back at that, you know, the Bible talks about us being babes in Christ and a baby will always find its way to the breast. And I think that's what happened with, with me is that, that I was just this babe in Christ but somehow always had the, had the ability to find my way to the breast and start to feed on the, the spiritual milk that God's, God provides uh, for us. You know, it's, uh, there's so much more that, uh, that was happened, that has happened in the journey. There's ministries that, that have come up. But, you know, that just focusing on the evangelism side just for this moment is that from that woman in that Chinese restaurant in the valley, from that day, I stopped counting at 10,000 souls, one for, for the kingdom. Now, I don't know about you, man, but I think God took this kid out of a, a solitary confinement, a kid that was crying out, I want to change, but I just don't know how to change. He took that kid, he brought someone along, someone to speak into that kid's life about the kingdom and about this, this full life that he could have. And it, it's, it's, it's been a, was probably a, another 10-year journey before I really got up to that point of knowing what it was to have a full life in Christ. And it was, yeah, it's just been a, an absolute amazing journey. There's lots more, but I don't Thanks, Peter. That does cover some of the important chapters about yourself. And I actually sense there's more. Looking back, reflecting on that word of evangelism, the time in the restaurant, pursuing a serious relationship with Marie and your commitment to change. About what year was that or, or do you recall how old you were then? At, at that time I would have been 20, 20 year old. So from the time from 12 to 20, um, a good percentage of that time was spent in kids' institutions and, and, and prisons until Marie sent me the, that letter 
telling me that Jesus would come into my life and, and be a be my friend. On that note, you know that I end up with Marie. We end up getting married and we've been together for 48 years. Uh, 38 years, sorry. 39. Yeah, 40th anniversary next year. And so her father, who was shocked when I asked if I could marry his daughter, ended up becoming one of my best friends, treated as his own kid. This is the same guy you stole a car from at the beachfront in Sangain, which then made that miraculous U-turn. And he turned out to adopt you as one of his own. Yeah, same guy. Man, we went on mission trips together. We preached together overseas. It was an, yeah, it was an amazing journey until he passed away. Talking about that period in which you had lacked the love of a father and family environment, it's common for many people that when we get put into a different environment, which Marie and the church family had introduced you to, it is a different world. There is a process and it often takes time for change to be established. Even as we grow physically as children, it takes time. Learning to walk, read and write, riding bicycles, learning to drive a car. None of this happens immediately. It might take 20 years or somewhere in between. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it's the same spiritually. Yeah. It's an important point that you make, Peter, because we're all on a journey and it does take time to walk through spiritual maturity phases to set you up as the person that you are now. That's a very important foundational thing. There's a scripture that says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will sort themselves out essentially mm. it's an interesting translation in english which it just says seek whereas the original language implied that this was an active process whereby we seek and we also keep on seeking even now i'm sure you don't feel like you've reached the goal 100% no way looking back you have all that part of the journey which has now recrafted your life completely, physically and spiritually. But I'm sure you're still seeking. There's probably something you can just talk us through. You've been married 39, going on 40 years. Faithful to that blonde girl who was able to point you in the direction of change. But you are still seeking things of the kingdom and you still have things to do, I'm sure. And... There is still a purpose. With the, the still seeking, I, I, I suppose, you know, God's, God's called us to ministry and that happened right back in the early days. Uh, we had prophecies over our life that we were called to the islands um, and so we set about you know, following those, those words that we had in the early years. I, I booked in uh, to go on my first missions trip in in uh, 1990, uh, it was to Vanuatu, we called to the islands, we were being obedient to the word that was upon our life. I got to Brisbane airport, uh, handed my passport across and customs officers come running it from all over the place. They threw us up against the wall and started to frisk us and uh, I was going, what's going on here? Uh, I started to think, have I got outstanding warrants? <laughs> yeah, it's just... What have I done wrong? And basically what had happened, there was a, a, a coup in the church that we were going to on, a, on a, in an island called Ifira. And the Minister for Immigration led the coup. Uh, the Minister for Immigration in Vanuatu had led the, led the coup. Now, he got in touch with Australian immigration and because and, he knew we were coming. And he said, stop their men from coming, they're high rollers, they're coming here to rip off our casinos. If they come, they'll be arrested and put in prison. Yeah, so my time was stopped. So it took 10 years, actually, to clear my name before I was able to go and travel to that nation, yeah. So in the meantime, my pastor said, oh, I didn't. I th think you should come to India with us. So I went to India, we were in doing short-term missions to India for 16 years, but never really satisfied, never really happy with uh, with working in that 
in that area, like uh, you know, a lot of stuff happened. There was we planted five churches, uh, two orphanages, two schools, and a hospital in the nation in in, the, in that time, just as a short termer. And Marie said, you know, we should go back and visit, revisit that that uh, the calling that's on in our life, that prophecy that we were called to the island. So I said, well, where do we go? And she said, let's go to Fiji, half the nation's Indians, and we love Indians by this time. And so going up to a church called Sorrow, and uh, as we passed, on the, on the way to Sorrow, we passed this uh, prison in a place called Natambua. And I'm, oh, there's a prison, let's go and see if we can get inside and share our stories with the inmates. Uh, Marie said, well, we'll go there after church. So we went up to the church, had a time of fellowship and worship up at the church. And, but the whole time I was saying, let's get back to the jail. Let's get back down to the prison. And so we headed back down to the prison after church. And I went up to the, the gate and said, just give a knock on the gate. And uh, the guy came out. I said, oh, mate, my name's Peter. I'm just from Australia. Do you think there's any chance we could get inside and just share our stories? Uh, with the inmates. And the guy in the gate just said, mate, you don't just come from another country and walk into prisons in another nation. It's, it's, it's unheard of. And I said, you're a Christian, aren't you? He said, yeah, I am. I said, the Bible says two or more agree it'll be done, eh? And he said, yeah, that's right. And so I said, you pray with me. So I said, I just prayed the prayer. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I, I thank you for this man. And I thank you for the opportunity to come to this prison. I pray that these prison gates will open up for us to get in there and to share the gospel. And I said, amen. I said, you agree, brother? He said, yeah, amen. And so we left it at that. We went set about for the next five years then um, helping churches, uh, you know, laying tiles on floors, putting up that roof, that's roofs, painting buildings. And, and I remember after five years of saying to the Lord, you know, God, if this is as good as it gets, if this is what you called us to the islands for, then forget it, I'm out of here. I, I don't want to do this. I don't. I'm not seeing like we weren't seeing a lot of fruit of what, were, what was going on. Uh, it was like I don't know, Alan. If your your dad ever give you a clip under the ear as a kid, <laughs> well, <clears throat> it was like God give me a clip under the ear. Like five years had passed since I was at that prison, and He said to me, "What about that prayer you prayed at the prison, Pete? What have you done about it? Faith without works is dead. So if you want live faith, then you've got to act on." On, on it, you know, you, you, if you believe in something, act upon it. You've got faith to believe for the mountains to be moved, they'll be moved. And so I said, yeah, well, you're right, Lord, I haven't done anything about it. And so I got onto the internet and I'm searching and searching for ministries in Fiji Corrections, uh, searching for Fiji Corrections, and, you know, I couldn't find a thing except one page that came up and it was Nathanbua Prison. It was the place that we first went to and there was just one phone number there. And so I rang the number, and I still remember the guy's name. His name was Sam. I said, oh, hi, it's Pete McCutcheon from Australia. I'm just interested in, in um, what ministries are in your prisons. And he, he said, oh, look, we have uh, the Mormons come in here. Then there's the Jehovah Witness. We have uh, the Assemblies of God come in here. I said, oh, could I have the Assemblies of God phone number, please? Or could you give me a, a contact? Oh look, Pete, we're very busy here, and and now I knew <laughs> I'd already been doing five years of ministry there. I knew that they were, they're never too busy <laughs> over in the islands. It's uh, yeah, it's sort of it's it's a real laid back country, and yeah, it's island time. And so I just said that to him, Sam, could I just have five more minutes of your time? Then he said, Okay, brother. And I said, and I shared my testimony with him. I shared my story with him. And then the phone went dead. I thought he's hung up on me. Sam, are you there? Sam, are you there? Are you still there? Yes, brother. And then I was silent again. When are you coming to Fiji? I said, oh, I'm booked in to come, come there at the end of January. And he said, this is my number, write it down. So I wrote his number down. He says, I'm the head of the prison here at Natambua. He said, you call me from the airport, I'll come and pick you up personally, bring you to Natambua, open the gates and let you go inside and speak to the inmates. I said, praise God, thanks, brother. I will do that. I got back onto the internet and the 
whole of the prison system in Fiji opened up to me, even down to headquarters. And I thought, what do I do here? And Lord, look, look. He said, the same as you did with Sam. He said, write them a letter, share your testimony in a letter, in an email. Tell them you're an ex-inmate and that you want to come in and, and you want to see God start changing a person's life because no one will change unless they receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. And so I wrote this email off to them. They wrote back to me and said, when, when are you coming to Fiji? I wrote back and told them the dates. And then they sent back to me an itinerary to go and preach in every prison in Fiji. Now, I, I couldn't get around the, the itinerary in two weeks. We have since. We've been around every prison. But we end, and what, what happened out of that was uh, a ministry was formed, it was One Tribe Ministries, um, what One Tribe Ministry does is we, we go into prisons throughout the Pacific. Uh, we teach the inmate a new skill. We upskill them and teach them welding or beehives, uh, something that will give them an opportunity cre to create employment when they get out or to earn a living instead of going back to the fish markets and selling drugs or, or getting involved in criminal activities. And so that was one part of it. But before they can do the, the upskill, they need to, most of them become a Christian. We get and then we share the gospel. So we have this upskilling side. of. We also have this spiritual side where, where inmates are coming to Christ and, 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 and they're trained how to effectively share their faith. We can go into prisons now. Uh, Fiji Women's Corrections was a, a good, good one where we train the inmates how to effectively share their faith. We've come back and not one inmate did not know Christ because other inmates had already shared the gospel from we've taught the girls that are doing life how to disciple uh, the inmates that are there. So it's like walking into church every time you walk into the prison there. And I remember the last time I was there, I, I said, we have a guest speaker uh, here today. And and uh, I don't know if any of you have heard this person speak before, but I tell you what, it, it's a, it's going to be a powerful message. And, and the, the girls are sitting there excited about looking to the door, looking for someone to come in through the door. And I said, let me introduce you to her. Emma, please come up here and share the share the word of God. And so it was one of the inmates that was already, yeah, it was one of their own people. And so we started to give them opportunity then to start to share the word. And now, man, some of the greatest preachers I've heard have come out of out of the prisons within Fiji. Fiji then submitted a, 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 our program that we were running, a rehabilitation program to a South Pacific Forum on Rehabilitation. Uh, Papua New Guinea saw it, Solomon Islands saw it, Numia. So these guys saw the the program, saw that it had won in the South Pacific Forum. We didn't even submit it. They, the corrective services submitted it. And so we started getting inquiries from these other nations if we can come and run programs in their prisons. And we don't have the resources to, to do it in every nation. So we really had to pray, God, where do you want us to go? Which nations do we go to? And so Vanuatu was the next nation. Uh, and then Fiji was the next nation. So there's still more nations. We're just managing to look after those uh, three at the moment. But, man, there's so many more open open doors, and we've seen thousands, literally thousands of inmates come to Christ and, and seen them changed there by the power of God. It's just It's been a, just an amazing uh, journey. I remember when we went to, to Vanuatu, uh, before we... we what things that we learned in Fiji was that sometimes you turn up to the prisons, the guards wouldn't know who you were and you couldn't get in or it would have to be postponed. And so it was really taking away from our time in those nations. We, we um, went to Fiji, to, Vanu to Vanuatu from Fiji and asked if we could have an MOU, um, you know, stating what we're there for, what we'll do, what we can... Uh, provide or what God can provide for the for the prison system in the area of rehabilitation and what what they expect from us. And one of the things was that when we're in the nation, that we're allowed twenty four seven access into the prisons. So we took that to Vanuatu. Uh, they wanted to rewrite a few things, so we ended up coming back to Australia. It, uh, some emails went back and forwards uh, between Corrective Services and One Tribe Ministries till we. So we eventually come to an agreement, and so we would go over there then and sign the MOU. As I'm getting onto the plane, 
But the Lord says to us, Peter, I want you to pray for the Prime Minister. Well, that's a bit of an unusual request. Lord, I don't even know him. And he said, yeah, but I want you to pray for him. So I got there, uh, picked up. Um, the next day met up with Simon Lover, who's one of the chiefs in Vanuatu. And he was part of Evangelism Explosion, which is a ministry that we that look after in Queensland. But he he come along with me to the to the, to sign the MOU, and as we're going up there, I said, "You know, Simon, God told me that I was going to pray for your prime minister on this trip. I don't know when that's going to happen." And so Simon was just very quiet. He said, "Oh, okay, that's good, brother." And we we went up into corrective services. They we signed the MOU, and as we walked out. I'm waiting at the bus stop with Simon, and Simon turns to me and says, Pete, the Prime Minister leaves for China tomorrow. I went, oh, well, maybe I got it wrong. He said, no, 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 no. He says, he has a, a dinner on tonight. Because I'm a chief, I'm allowed to come, but my wife doesn't want to come, so would you like to come along with me to the dinner? I said, yeah, I'd love to, mate. That'd be fantastic. So bolted back to the hotel and made my way back out to where the dinner was being held. I'm pretty outgoing and I love to meet people and greet people. It's just part of the makeup that God's made me. Uh, I'm going around this dinner and I'm meeting with some of the chiefs and some of the people and some of the locals and that just having great chat. And then I looked over and I saw this uh, this little short guy and he had like a little bowler's hat in his head. And I thought, oh, what a character. And I've gone, made a sort of a beeline towards him and uh, had a smile on my face and we made eye contact and he smiled at me and he put his hand out and I said, oh, no, come on, mate, give us some love. And I wrapped my arms around him and went to squeeze him. Next thing, these blokes come running in and Simon come running over as well. Simon's bowed his head before this person. He says, Peter, I'd like you to meet the Honourable Mr Prime Minister. And anyway, <laughs> I, I still remember I looked up at him because I couldn't believe he was the Prime Minister. And I looked at him and my words were, fair dinkum, mate, you're the Prime Minister. <laughs> he said, yes, I am. He's told the guys, the heavies that come running over was his bodyguards. And so, anyway, we got talking and we just, all of a sudden just had this, uh, there was this connection uh, between each other. It was like the meeting of Mary and Elizabeth, you know, the baby leapt inside him. It was like the Holy Ghost just leapt inside when I started to speak with this man. And so we went, they... The dinner was on and he said, Pete, come and sit beside me and have your, your meal. So I was able to have this whole time with the Prime Minister. I said, you know, God asked me to come and pray for you, but man, I, I don't know what to pray for. What's, what's your prayer request? And man, oh man, he had some serious issues happening in his cabinet. Mm, I won't go into the story. You could probably look it up online if you like. But we prayed, we prayed for that. We prayed for his leadership. Uh, and then... We left, but that was another thing. When I went to pray for him, I said, oh, you know, I like to lay hands on people. And so when I've gone to lay hands on him, his heavies come running over again. <laughs> I was going to choke him or something, and he's told them to back off. Anyway, I had a conference call then with uh, with another with, with an evangelism explosion over in New Zealand, and I was just about, I had to leave there and then. And so I've said to Sato, I said, brother, I've got to go. He said, how are you getting there? Have you got a bus? And I said, no, no. So he's called his driver over and he's put me into the Prime Minister's car. The flags and all on it, brother, and, and drove me back into the hotel. All the, the, the manager and the workers at the hotel see the Prime Minister's car come into the, the driveway and go, whoa, whoa, look, at, look what's happening. The Prime Minister's here. And then Pete rolls out of the back seat. They go, what are you doing? And so, yeah, that was a meeting with him. But, you know, since then... Uh, the, his wife, he, he's actually, the Prime Minister has actually built a church on the land where, where we were at that time, uh, which is flourishing. His wife has been through evangelism training, and he's not Prime Minister today, but his cab, half his cabinet ended up in prison. And we were able to lead half of that cabinet to Christ and train them and equip them uh, with, the, with the gospel. So it was just a, a, and I can look, you look back on things like that and say, oh, that's going to be a hard, hard one for me to do. God, this has just got to be you. You've got to be all over it. And you see the reasons behind it. He was struggling because his cabinet had gone off the rails. So, Peter, there's many things we can highlight out of these examples. From what you've explained, you, 
I mean, you treat people's physical needs as with their spiritual needs. Yeah. And this is from prison inmates to prime ministers. You may have been unconventional at times, just thinking of the bear hug on the prime minister. Yeah. But the results have been, you know, a fruitful experience. You've also sought out individuals from prison inmates to those in need with, with programs that initiate change, reflecting on your own experiences of change. There is an example from our Lord where he illustrates the importance of seeking out the single sheep that is lost. I think this highlights your own story where he came and sought you out and maybe he placed a young blonde girl into that circumstance but with a purpose. Yeah. Reminded also of Luke 10 where he sends us two by two and look, we know the Lord is a fantastic friend but the Lord himself also recognises it's good to have a life friend as well as himself to walk with. Yeah, And I see he's given you a life friend. He's given you his friendship and relationship. Mm. He's taken you from a lost sheep position and a hopeless position. Jails and juvenile detentions are good places to breed further crime. Mm. But he has turned that all around. We have walked out of that also have been able to return to offer hope, purpose and practical tools to at least give people an opportunity to choose a better life with a spiritual reference point. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing story, Peter. And there has been fruit out of that. Also, the things that you have come to know, you have also sought to share. This is a reminder that we don't hide a light under a cover. But we have a light to shine and you have been standing on top of the hill. So just looking forward, Peter, you are involved in a number of things. You still have evangelism explosion going on. There's been travel restrictions over the last 12 months limiting your ability to get to places you, I'm sure, would dearly love to get back to. But with the internet, Zoom and other, you know, the tools, I'm sure you're not sitting around just waiting for things to happen. No, not at all. We, we, we're running training again uh, in Australia. We've currently ended into a, uh, a semester, which is 13 weeks of training. So we're in our third week of that now. We've uh, had what we called a launch uh, just recently, which is, has been uh, it's just a weekend of uh, just sharing... Uh, about the materials, about the modules that we present and, and learning the gospel on the hand. And we also had a, a, another launch with the a, a, um, Korean church where we had 47 um, students in that. We, we uh, did the training with the Evangelism Explosion, which is basically how to effectively you know, share your faith, which has been fantastic. Now, we're restricted on, on travel, but... I'd always been looking for opportunities and praying to, to God to open up an opportunity here in Australia uh, for us to do exactly what we do overseas here. Now, I can't get into prisons here because uh, I have violent crimes and, and the, history, my, the history of my crimes won't allow me to go in and run programs. I can visit one-on-one, but I, I can't run programs. So I went along to this place called uh, Goodness Street Life just to have a chat with them because a lot of the people that are there... Uh, homeless, were homeless, a lot of them have come from prison, have nowhere to, to stay and so it gave a, created an opportunity there to share with the people who run it that we're stuck here in Australia at the moment, what we do is upskill uh, inmates and, and, and share the gospel to inmates and see them radically change their lives and uh, ask if there'd be any opportunity uh, there. So they welcomed us to to come in there and, and run some programs. So just in a short amount of time, like this the last few weeks, we've been able to find someone who who build uh, uh, 12 homeless pods where they put them up on a, a deck. The deck's already built. And, and so the homeless can uh, have shelter throughout uh, winter. 
so they'll be out, out of the weather. So they're already established. Uh, next Thursday we start a, a barbecue. So on every Thursday night we go down there and we feed them. Now, the butchers, these guys aren't even Christians. They've come on board and said, look, we'll supply the next 10 weeks of sausages, 10 kilos a, a week. In fact, we'll even come down and cook them for you uh, and we'll, we'll help feed the, the um, guys in, the, in, the, in the, that area. And so it's just been amazing at what God will do for a heart that's open to be used, for a life that's open to be used. And I think that's uh, one thing that's forever present in my life, uh, that I'm always looking for that opportunity. I've always got my eyes open for that opportunity. And like I said at the start, I'm an includer, and I just hate seeing people doing life alone or struggling with life because and I think it's because I'd been in that position or that situation or even have felt totally lost and you know man I know that uh, I said at the start it was about you know someone to come in as a friend Jesus had come in as a friend he'd be a friend you know when you when you look at eternal life that's basically what it is it was for me when uh, you know you give this offer of eternal life this free gift of eternal life out there that a lot of people wonder, what is eternal life, you know? Is it just to live forever? What's the use? I don't want to go and live in life, a life like this forever. You know, you have people like myself sitting in cells trying to top themselves to get away from it. In Jesus' very words, he says, this is eternal life, that they may know the one and only true God and the Son whom he sent. And that verse actually hits it on the head. It sort of nails it for me what eternal life is. And it's an eternal life is a relationship with the Father and with the Son that starts now and goes from this point on into eternity, forever and ever and ever. As part of your purpose in eternity, you are an includer, Peter. So I see you just want to include every other person you can into that story. <laughs> I want to populate yeah. heaven. I want to, I want to see as many people come to know Christ as possible. You know, with only... We're only given three score and ten, isn't it? Seventy years, and after that, it's uh, it's grace. So, man, I've got ten years of uh, ten years left of my life, and after that, it's grace. But man, I wanna, yeah, I feel it starting to ramp up more and more every year. Peter, you could actually do more in the next ten or twenty years than what you've done up to now. You are running towards the finish line with an even greater zeal and purpose. Yeah, thanks, brother. But as you rightly point out, it's about relationship. You're not doing this to follow some rules or religious practice. It's rather promotion of relationship so that people will know the one true father. And I understand your earthly father didn't give that example, but you found that true father that we all have and that you testify to. You know, Alan, you mentioned my real father now. I've got to admit that I, I hated him growing up um, as his son. There was never really that father-son relationship ever there. And when I become a Christian and he started to see change happening in my life, he always said, no, that's because of Marie, that you've just found yourself a good lady who's leading you down the right path. And I said, no, Dad, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And so my dad ended up uh, getting cancer, having cancer. Uh, he was in hospital um, in Redcliffe, and I was at work, and God spoke to me and said, Pete, I want you to go and speak to your dad. I want you to go share the gospel with him. Uh, Lord, I've tried a number of times. He just keeps rejecting it. It's, uh, you even say yourself that not everyone's going to get saved. As much as I want my dad to be saved, you even said that, you know, maybe not. Pete, I want you to go and share the gospel with your father again. And then his voice is getting a little bit more sterner now. And so I said, okay, I'll be obedient. And I went into the, the boss and said, man, I've got to go. Uh, I've got to go and preach the gospel to my dad. And so, hey, you go, Pete, you go. And so I started to head down to Redcliffe and, I, and this fear uh, come over me, the exact same fear that was present at that time I first shared the gospel. And I started to get nervous. I said, no, no, I can't let this get the better of me. I, I need to stand with someone in prayer. I went into a church along the, the hallway at Bald Hill, Hills there, and uh, Sean Marler was the pastor there. He wasn't there 
and I asked the receptionist if she could get him on the phone. I, I really need some prayer. I told Sean what was going on, and Sean prayed for us. And, he, and three things he'd pray. He said, I pray that Pete has a word in season for his father, uh, that there'll be no hindrances, and that his dad will get saved. And so I, I left that off that phone, bold as brass again, couldn't wait to get to the hospital. I flew, flew into the, the, the hospital ward, and as I've gone through the doors, there's my dad's bed, my auntie's, uh, all of his RSL mates are around him, some of his uh, war buddies. And I thought, oh, no, how am I going to get into here? And so on, before that, actually, when I went, got out of the church, I plugged the, 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 we had cassettes, I put the cassette in, and the very first words to come out of this preacher's mouth I was listening to was, greater love has no man than this, and he'd lay down his life for his friends. So that was a word in season because my dad was a military man. He knew what it was to lay down his life. So we've headed to the, uh, the hospital, all these people around his bed, and my auntie says, oh, Pete's here. Let's give him some time alone for his dad. So first, the word in season. Next, no hindrances. I thought, well, this is great. Two out of three ain't bad. There's one more to go, Lord. Let's get into it. And so I've gone in and I said to my dad, I said, you know what, Dad? I really appreciate you being prepared to lay down your life, to go to war, to, 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 to fight battles overseas in, in foreign countries just to put food on the table for your family back home. But you know, Dad, one, one, the, the, I serve in an army as well. And my commander, my leader, actually went all the way and he laid his life down for the troops. His name's Jesus Christ. Can I tell you about him? She said, yeah, I want to hear about him. And so through that, I was able to share the gospel, uh, ask my dad if he wanted to receive Christ. And so there on his, on his bed, uh, this old man dying of cancer received Jesus into his life. As soon as we've said amen, the RSL buddies, my aunties, and everyone come walking back into the room. Ten minutes later, they ruled my dad out. They did a biopsy on him and he hemorrhaged and it wasn't long, like he was never in his right mind again. It was a day or two later that he, that he passed away. So it was a last moment. He had 10 minutes spare where he could say his goodbyes to people and embrace him and hug him and, and uh, see him in heaven. So man, he went from that moment, he, he, he went seeing Jesus face to face. It's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And there's so many people, so many people out there that, 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 that they want to know the truth to life. They want to know answers to life. And, and they just search in the wrong place they, they, and never, ever find those answers. Like myself. But the answer is always, it's just found in Jesus Christ. It's just so simple. It's a really simple life. If you, if you look at it, just all you have to do is be obedient to, to him and his words to Admit that you've stuffed up and ask him to forgive you. He's already paid the price for it on the cross. Pete, you've just given us all a tremendous reminder. The story about your father is a testimony in itself to the power of conversion to save people's spirit for eternity. That was the ultimate gift you were able to give back to your dad, Peter. I'm sure you will look forward to catching up with him, as with others, when the time comes. You have shared an incredible story, Peter. I am reminded that we are requested and, if not commanded, to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send the workers. One thing looking forward, you need more workers. Well, Peter, maybe not you personally. The Lord is the one that can provide this so that here together, I think we can agree and appeal to the Lord of the harvest to send more workers. Because if we look to the fields, there is plenty of wheat out there that needs to be harvested and plenty of work to do. Amen. Yeah, get out there and swing the sickle. And that's what today has been about, is sharing your story. And I really appreciate your time to open your heart, Peter, to share your testimony, to see where you've come from and where you are. To know you have more time left, I mean, it could be 20, 
or even another 40 years. But you're going to keep working in the things the Lord has led you to do. Peter, it's been great to catch up and to be touched by your story. And thank you for joining us. This podcast is not sponsored by any group or organisation and does not seek or promote endorsements. Our motivation is simply inspiration, that you may be inspired by the spirit of the one true God, to know that the objective and narrative coexist, that the spiritual and physical are not separated, to increase in understanding and to walk in his way. Put my trust in you Those seas may roar I'll put my trust